Hi everyone! Welcome back to another episode of Apply Club Events, hosted by IASA's Applied Anthropology Network. Today we have the pleasure of listening to Erin Taylor, the founder of Anthropology and a research lead at the European Women Payments Network, with the topic, Can We Create a Financial Sector Fit for a Human World? We hope you're going to enjoy this episode, and please don't forget to follow us on our diverse channels like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Slack, and more, which you can find in the show notes. Dr. Erin Taylor is an economic anthropologist and a research consultant specializing in consumer finance research. She got her PhD in anthropology at the University of Sydney, Australia, researching how squatter settlement residents in the Dominican Republic use their material environment to change their social and economic lives, upon which her book, Materializing Poverty, is based. Since then, Erin has been an active researcher of global systems of mobility, technology, and money, uh, working and authoring numerous papers on topics of mobility, migration, and the movement of goods and money in Latin America, as well as the European context. She has also been an active practitioner uh, applying economic anthropology to the field of finance. She recently found the Fintropology, uh, her very own consultancy dedicated to helping organizations understand their customers' financial behavior and consequently to innovate to meet their needs. And putting the human in the center of finance has been therefore a career long dedication for Erin, one which uh, she has pursued with um, uh, a lot of passion, we might say, uh, and we're very, very excited to have her give an impulse today. Uh, and Erin, just let me uh, give you control of um, sharing the screen. Thank you all very, very much for being here. And thank you very much uh, to Marcus and Laura for um, supporting us and all the hard work you're doing. Uh, it's all really appreciated. Just a quick background on the New Apply Finance Club. Um, the New Apply Finance Club came about from my perspective as a bit of an accident. What actually happened was a few months ago, I was thinking, oh, gee, it'd be nice to find more anthropologists and others working in the financial space. So whether that be in banks or fintechs or doing things on, let's say, microfinance in NGOs or whatever. And I already knew several people um, especially in the United States, but I had this feeling there's probably a lot more people hiding out there. So I put out a call on LinkedIn to say, hey, anyone working in finance, if you're an anthropologist, get in touch. And I found over 60 people around the world, which I thought was quite impressive, actually quite well, well spread out. There was about even numbers in the US and Europe, plus people ranging from India to Australia, et cetera. And so we've had a few meetings with this small group already, just very small private meetings just to discuss what it means to be an anthropologist working in finance, you know, like things like, you know, is there something special about working in finance? Do you need different methods? What can anthropology bring to the table, et cetera? And uh, Laura contacted me excited about this saying, oh, actually we have these new apply clubs so we can actually build this into a club. Uh, and that's where we are today. So um, as you know, this is the launch. This is the beginning of our, pro our program. I'm here hopefully just to make a bit of trouble. Um, hopefully I'll annoy everybody up enough that you all want to give talks yourselves because you think you can do it better than me, which you probably can. But um, we're definitely looking for speakers. So please also do have a think about whether you would like to talk in an apply finance event as well, or perhaps run something like a panel. So the more ideas, the better. 
Today I'm going to be talking about this topic that I've been thinking about for a very long time. Can we create a financial industry fit for a human world? Now, of course, this is quite a problematic question because, well, you know, it could mean so many different things. Uh, you've probably all heard lots of critiques about the financial industry and capitalism and history of using financial tools for exploitation, going back to slavery and even before um, to, you know, the global financial crisis uh, of several years ago. The idea of a, what it means to be fit for a human world is also massively problematic because what is fit for one person is not fit for another. So I would just like to begin by saying I don't believe that there's like some sort of magical solution here, but there are a lot more provocative questions we can ask. Now, my approach today is going to be a little different from what you may expect. I've just been telling Laura, much to her disappointment, I'm not going to focus on capitalism, actually. I'm actually just going to dive straight into the products and services. I want to look at how different financial companies have offered financial services that they think are good for people in some way, going back to the early uh, 1800s to, you know, basically like today. So first, if you want to think about this question of whether you can create a financial history uh, industry fit for a human world, you have to go look back in history. Uh, on your screen here, you'll see um, a picture on the left-hand side. That's something called the Nuts Bar Bank, which is a savings bank located just around the corner from me here in The Hague. Um, and that is one of the fairly early efforts to build a bank that serves the people. A couple of centuries ago, banks were not really for everybody. They served more of the wealthy. But at a certain point in the late 1700s to early 1800s, there was a movement to go, oh, hey, uh, actually, it could be really good to give people with low incomes bank accounts and encourage them to save, for example, and manage their money better. Of course, that was a double motive. Uh, there was a motive to assist thinking of financial services are something akin to welfare that would help society, but also there's a motive always in these movements to kind of discipline a population. And some of you might be familiar with writings on, you know, mortgages and how in certain countries, certain times in history, people have been encouraged very much to take out mortgages, because once you have a mortgage, you're sort of like a captive audience for the state. You kind of, you sit there in your house, you try to pay back your mortgage, you don't leave your job because you have to pay back your mortgage and that kind of keeps you in place and creates stable society. So, okay, I haven't mentioned capitalism apart from saying I won't mention it, but the state is definitely coming in here, as you can see. Uh, the one on the right, I think is fascinating. This is something called the Scottish Widows Fund, which was set up in, let me just find the year, I think it was 1815. Uh, this is an advertisement for their 100 year anniversary. And this society was set up to provide for women whose husbands had died during or after the Napoleonic Wars. So this is women who, okay, their husband is no longer around, how they're gonna support themselves. Let's have society to assist people. And this was a really big thing at the time, these kinds of societies, whether it be for, for widows or houses for elderly men or houses for orphans, there's massive movement uh, in Europe, especially to develop these kinds of, of solutions for society. This was a major way in which 
society was looked after. The state welfare was not as strong, but you had all these different associations, whether providing financial tools or simply other kinds of social assistance to support the population. So this idea that finance is good for people is definitely not new. It is not new at all. Uh, and I'm sure if, if David Graeber were with us today, he would pipe up and say, well, you know, you can go back a lot further than that and a lot broader than that as well. Uh, I just encourage everyone to read his book, Debt, if you haven't already, uh, rather than go into it myself. Now, financial services are updating their messages. This is the Scottish widows again, but with a rather different message today. This one says, nice husband, be ashamed if something were to happen to him. So um, there's this problematic in many ways, which I don't want to get into the issues, but I find it completely fascinating that many financial services providers these days are actually trying really hard with their advertising to do something different and have a different kind of appeal to people today. So this is this kind of like dark humour that they've got into uh, this advertisement to try and say, hey, look, you know, you need these financial tools. The same problems still exist today as they did you know, a couple of hundred years ago. You may be left, you know, with a lower income, with no savings, etc. If, if something is to go wrong in your family. So you've got actually in gender terms, the same message is still coming out a couple of hundred years later. And I'll get back to the gender question in a little while. Now from there, we're sort of fast forwarding uh, 200 years or a little bit less to the beginnings of what I kind of see as the new era as this approach to the idea that financial tools can help people. Back in the 1970s, Muhammad Yunus founded Grameen Bank to develop uh, microcredit products for people who are low income around the world. These were not targeted at people living in wealthy countries like you saw with you know, um, Scottish widows in the last advertisement. But these are targeted at people uh, who are living in poor countries who are considered to need formal financial tools. Now, the real uh, most important word here is formal. So uh, around the world, people have had financial tools forever. The question of formality and informality is again that one of who's producing it. Is it produced by a company? Is it produced by a state? Or is it simply a neighbor offering a service? So there's this idea about, there's this idea that Informal tools are not enough. Somehow that tool has to be legitimated because it's offered by a company or, or by a state, for example. So to me, that's um, been the big shift is this idea of, well, we need to get people into these systems so that they have access to credit, they have somewhere safe to, to store their money, etc. And that comes with this idea that if we do that, then we can help people. And I'll just get to the benefits in a minute. But since the 1970s, there's been a little bit of a shift away from microcredit towards microfinance. And there's also been a shift away from these kinds of products tailored specifically at low income people towards more mainstream financial products. So the image on the right shows a mobile money outlet and mobile money is a service that is in many countries around the world. It allows you to have an account on your ordinary mobile phone, not a smartphone, and use that to send money to different people. And actually, you can do all kinds of transactions. These have really become platforms for many different services, including insurance, for example, or even gambling is one possibility. 
Um, so, but those are, that's more of a mainstream service. It's not a product that is designed specifically for people who are low income, but rather for everybody. And yet it seemed to be especially beneficial for people who are low income because it's so easy to access. It's relatively cheap to use in most countries. It's very convenient, et cetera. So that's been the kind of the historical trajectory uh, in terms of that idea of uh, finance helping people. Now, how might finance to help people? Um, in terms of these kind of microfinance, mobile money products, or even in terms of the more, um, the greater range of services you see uh, in wealthier countries today, there's a couple of approaches. One is the demand side, one is the supply side. So on the demand side, the idea has always been for the last few decades that supplying people with financial tools can reduce poverty, they can help you smooth consumption, so you're not having these big swings in what you buy. Um, there's the idea that financial tools can increase your resilience, especially in terms of managing shocks. So let's say there's an earthquake or a pandemic for that matter, that if you have financial tools, you can draw upon those to maybe access credit or access some savings you put away or receive remittances from a family member overseas. And that having these provides benefits that informal tools do not. Uh, and also we come back to the idea of increasing the stability of the population and things like reducing crime because there is no longer as much cash floating around the system. Uh, on the supply side, we have the idea that um, the, these services increase the speed of transactions and that that is good for society overall. It strengthens the economy. Uh, transactions go more smoothly along the value chain. Um, and these services, because they provide you opportunities for, let's say, mobile money agents, they provide employment. Uh, and also the rather contentious idea that they do actually boost macroeconomic growth. I've looked into the research. It's not really that convincing. There's like maybe some cases where it can and maybe some where it can't. Uh, but that will probably lead us nicely into the challenges that have been put forward. So this idea of these financial tools as being very helpful for humanity has not gone without critique, as you can imagine. You probably can all think of many, many ways in which these kinds of financial tools might be problematic. And there are many ways in which they're problematic. The book on the left, Due Diligence, is one of my favorites for pointing out the flaws of microfinance, especially, especially actually microcredit, uh, which has been the most problematic. Um, Microcredit certainly is useful for many people for many reasons, but it doesn't necessarily work the way that NGOs and multilateral organisations imagine it would work. On the previous slide, I mentioned that reducing poverty has been one of the sort of stated benefits of microfinance. But I have to say that in terms, of, especially of microcredit, the evidence is not so good. Um, David Rudman in his book, what he does is he reviewed a whole bunch of evidence around the world about microcredit and what its effects were. And basically after many, many, many pages drew the conclusion that you cannot actually conclude that microcredit has any noticeable impact on poverty, at least not when it's offset against the problems that it can cause. There've been not numerous scandals over history of uh, issue, times in which um, Access to credit has actually resulted in greater indebtedness. There have been debt scandals in India, et cetera. 
Um, so one of the issues with microcredit is that if it's not properly regulated and not properly controlled, then it can actually cause more harm than good, which is probably not that surprising. I mean, if you think about it, the idea that we can help poor people be less poor by getting them into debt, there can be some problems there. You know, that's not necessarily like, you know, straightforward logically to think about. It creates a bit of cognitive dissonance, at least for me and probably many of you. If you want something really interesting to read on this topic, I completely recommend the book in the middle, El Norte or Bust, How Migration, Fever and Microcredit Produced a Financial Crash in a Latin American Town by David Stoll. It's amazing. He really does this great ethnography, which he did over years, looking at these issues of why people in this town kept getting into massive debt. Uh, and what effects it had. And I really would love to say more, but I also don't because I just want you to read the book and find out for yourselves because it's brilliant. Now, moving away from sort of the finance with a small F to finance with a big F, uh, the book on the right, Fool's Gold by Gillian Tett, uh, takes a different approach to critique in that it looks at the global financial crisis and what went wrong and tries to understand why people didn't see the global financial crisis. So she's critiquing that whole idea that uh, big finance, you know, um, is just, you know, like the engine of economic growth and it's all fine and whatever, which is probably most of us here don't really believe anyway. Um, but I'll leave that up to you to decide. Um, what is most important about this book to me is that it helps us make that connection between the big finance and the little finance. And what I mean by that is that it very much draws out the connection between what investment bankers might do when they're fiddling with numbers and the actual real effects for actual real people who do have mortgages and do end up losing their houses. So this idea that you can look at the big finance and little finance separately is, is not true. They're always connected and there needs to be more work on that. I must admit, I am more of the consumer finance kind of person. I don't do much work on financial systems uh, and their structures and their effects. Um, but I just certainly would be a proponent of people doing more work to sort of match up those levels of how they kind of go together. So over the last, let's say, 10 years especially, possibly longer, but I would, I would personally say the last 10 years, there have been some pretty big changes in terms of what consumers can get, like what is available to consumers in terms of financial products. What we've seen is this massive kind of proliferation of products and services and providers, which has kind of really changed the landscape. So if you think it wasn't that long ago when we all had to like basically go to our bank in person and the bank would be on our high street and we wouldn't have a banking app and we wouldn't have all these other, you know, challenger banks and different apps for different things. But these days you can access an enormous range array of financial products and services from your phone or your computer. And that has implications, which I'll come to in a sec. Um, it gives you lots more consumer choice, for example. Um, it means that you're not just tied to your one bank. It means you're not just tied to the same suite of products. You can choose from investment apps, um, you know, apps to uh, uh, ch change your money, change your currency, apps to transfer money, um, there's all kinds of apps out there you can use today. These products, because they're designed for mobile and they're designed for ease of use, they tend to be much more human friendly in terms of the interface and design. And if any of you have ever logged on to a, um, uh, like an investment uh, site for your bank, for example, and 
uh, you know, the kind of 1990s style where you log in and there's just numbers everywhere and lots of information. If you ever compare that experience with using the investment app, you'll probably agree that using an investment app is much, much easier. You know, usually you can log in and they give you these limited options and it makes the whole process very simple. Just like signing up to any digital service these days where you just basically log in with your Google or whatever and then it gives you one question which you answer, it gives you another. So that matters to me because it's changed the way in which we manage our finances, the way we make financial decisions. The barriers are lower to get things done like make investments. And that is a double-edged sword because on the one hand, that's fantastic because it totally democratizes access to things like investments. You don't need to know anything about investments in order to access them. But that also is potentially product because then you're problematic because then you just don't know what you're investing in. So, you know, it's this is the kind of issue we always come across. If you start thinking about FinTech and what it does, you always get into these traps. Okay, it's fantastic, but like, what are the risks? And the market is changing so fast that it's difficult to keep up with what's going on. Regulators can't keep up, keep up, et cetera. Because you do end up running into more risks of which there are numerous ones. Um, lack of information. If you're trying to choose between multiple products and services, how do you get enough information about all of them? Uh, the indebtedness issue I mentioned before definitely more opportunities to be frauded if you're starting to use a whole bunch more apps but you don't really understand them you don't really know the companies you might not always know what you're buying or who you're buying it from if you're able to access products and services from across your national borders and you don't know what you're using that can be a problem uh, and as i also briefly mentioned you can use some of these services to link your bank accounts to your gambling which will you know can also obviously create further indebtedness issues what I find the most fascinating is that globally there's been a kind of a, what I see as a kind of a convergence though in the financial markets in terms of how these consumer finance products are configured for different groups of people. So whereas not very long ago there was a different kind of finance, finance done in low-income countries than high-income countries like with the microfinance and mobile money, we're now seeing more mainstream services being offered to low-income people, as I explained on the previous slide, but we're also seeing more niche products being offered in wealthy countries targeting marginalised groups, such as people who are low-income, uh, women who may not have as much access. Uh, I've heard of services for refugees. It's services for the elderly, services for the youth, etc. So this kind of idea that financial services should be helpful for the people is kind of reaching a sort of an equilibrium in how it's being implemented around the world, which I find really fascinating. So one of these is serving people with low incomes. And here are two examples of uh, companies that offer services to low income people, both in the United States. Varo Money is like a challenge bank based out of California. And uh, a Apparently, the story with Varo is that they didn't set out to specifically serve low-income people. It just happened. Uh, something about the design of their product offering meant that lower-income people were using it and they needed to investigate why. And it turns out there are many reasons uh, why, and many of it had to do with low barriers to entry, um, a lack of um, you know, extra charges when you go be below your balance. Like, it's all kinds of stuff like this that made it more attractive to people on low incomes. And so they kind of, as I understand it, they kind of reconfigured their um, messaging a bit to reflect that and embrace that market. 
On the right-hand side, we have a company called Earnin and also in the United States. And these are interesting because what they do is they allow you to receive your pay early. So um, let's say you earn a certain amount every two weeks and it's getting close to the end. You can have registered with Earnin and they will give you a kind of like a credit that you get before your payday. So that is a way of smoothing consumption. So you can get access to that money and not have to be waiting those few extra days in order to um, then, you know, pay your bills or whatever. And that can actually be massively beneficial because as I think we all know, being poor is really expensive. And if you're having to pay um, fees and charges because you couldn't pay things on time, that costs you a lot of money. So actually being able to get that money early and pay so you can avoid those fees can be extremely good. Um, I'm not going to comment actually on what risks there might be on this kind of a server because I don't know it well enough. Um, so I'm going to leave it at that and leave it to your imaginations to think what, what problems there might be. So another area I think is very interesting when you think about how to help people is the use of behavioural science. Behavioural science is another one of those kind of two-edged sword kind of things because on the one hand, yeah, of course, you want to be able to encourage people to do things that are good for them. But on the other hand, behavioural science can also be used to, to nudge people into directions that the company wants. So you're never going to have an even balance here, but I just want to show two examples of how that works in finance. The picture on the left um, is an advertisement on the web page of a company called Dreams, which is based in Scandinavia. They run a financial management application and they are especially interesting because they incorporate a lot of behavioral, uh, um, finance, behavioral science sorry, into, their, into their work. And they also have a board, like an advisory board of academics who help them and work on their products as well. So they really do this kind of industry academia collaboration. And one of the things that I find interesting about what they do is they have shifted away from focusing on monetary goals to focusing more on the affective aspects of your financial goal. So let's say, you know, you think, oh, I want to go on a holiday. I need to save up 3,000 euros, for example. What Dreams does is they will show you not so much the number you need to save, but something representing what you want to save it for. So this, for example, on this one, it says it's Varela. Um, there is a number there of how much you've saved, but it's low tech. So I had to sort of read for, lean forward to read it. And the user has put a picture of um, presumably their daughter in the middle. So when they look at their app and think, how am I going towards my goal? They're reminded why they want to achieve that goal. And the number is less important. And you've got this nice green kind of line around, which allows you to see your progress without actually focusing on the number. And that makes total sense because actually most of us, for most of us, the numbers are meaningless. The, the money is a mean to an end and actually it's the end we want, so focus on the end. Now, the one on the right, I think this might be in the way a little bit. The one on the right is from a company called Uni Super in Australia, which is a superannuation fund, which for those of you who don't know what superannuation is, because it's kind of an Australian thing, uh, sort of, uh, it's pension fund. And what they do in here is that they do show you figures quite prominently, oops, but what they do is they um, make it so you can compare yourself to your peers so that rather than just seeing how much money you have, you can see how much better or worse off you are than your peers. And the idea is that will prompt you to take it seriously and take action and actually give you a benchmark. Because if you just know, well, I have $132,000, 
but you don't know how much you're supposed to be saving, you know, how much you're supposed to retire with. It's completely meaningless. You can get, it's, it's, it's completely useless. You can get no information out of it. So they do this instead. Um, and I think that's quite tricky. I don't know if it actually makes people engage more. It could actually just make them feel bad. Um, but uh, I haven't seen any consumer research on this to, to say what actually the results are. Another one I love is a company called Afterpay, which was founded in Australia, but also now operates in the US and in Europe. Uh, and why I think this is interesting is because emotions in finance um, are really complicated and have a long history. And there's all sorts of interesting things happening. So as you can imagine, emotions have always been around in financial products, especially in communications and advertising. You can think of debt collectors, for example, who um, go out and try to, you know, get letters in the mail sort of demanding that you pay the money back and they try all kinds of means to make you feel you need to pay it back. They play on your emotions to try to get a response out of you. And if any of you are interested in this topic, I would recommend Joe DeVille's book um, uh, on debt, which I've now just forgotten the name, but I can put it in the chat in a little bit. Now, Afterpay, uh, really interesting for the use of emotions uh, for a couple of reasons that might not be quite so obvious. Afterpay, by the way, are a company that allows you to pay with credit at the point of sale. So you have like an app and you have an account and you're allowed a certain amount of money. So if you go to, you know, uh, Hema and want to buy something or Kmart or whatever, and um, at the counter, they, you can choose to pay with Afterpay, then you can use that and you pay back Afterpay in installments. Um, this picture on the left is basically the Afterpay logo and slogan. Afterpay, love the way you pay. Why do I find this interesting? Well, the idea of loving the way you pay is kind of new, kind of interesting. Whereas dreams really points to the goal you're going after, the affective aspect, afterpay tells us we can actually love the way we pay. Okay, that's interesting. Is it true? Is it just marketing spin? Really interesting. Well, I've heard many people say over the years that people don't love the way they pay. Um, people don't care about payments at all. It's what's called a dissatisfier. So unless something actually goes wrong when you're trying to pay, you don't notice your payments methods much. You just pay and that's it, it's gone. You don't even think about it. Only when something goes wrong do you start fuming and having a tantrum in the store because you can't get what you want. Afterpay tell us you can love the way you pay. And actually, I kind of believe it. When I was looking into... Um, the sort of forum surrounding Afterpay, the user community, I found this forum on Facebook. It was a user group called We Love Afterpay. And it consisted of mostly women talking all about Afterpay and where they could use it and where you could buy a certain product using Afterpay and et cetera. And they would even make up their own memes about Afterpay. Um, so I absolutely believe that you can love the way you pay. And if any of you have any examples of, of other products and services that promote payment as an enjoyable experience, I would love to hear them. But this is also, like when you think about this, this isn't also an idea about improving the world for humanity. It's not about, oh, let's get people out of poverty or let's help women narrow the gender gap. Let's help people love the way they pay. That is also an idea that we can improve our experience of our, our life through our financial tools, which I find really important. Uh, now, the one on the right is quite controversial. If you can't read it very well, it says broke as fuck, but strongly support treating yourself after pay. So, of course, it should be pretty obvious. The idea is you're broke, you want something, you can get it, you know, you deserve it. 
Um, apparently, Afterpay did not actually make this ad. This was made by the retailer um, that uh, has it uh, displayed and it caused a bit of a scandal. Um, people were not happy with the advertising at all because it encourages people to get into debt. But again, from our perspective, it uh, really draws upon those um, affective um, kind of characteristics, those feelings that, oh, you know, I want something, I desire something, and this financial tool can help me achieve that goal. Another very different example of using emotions in financial tools is in apps. There are some apps around these days that take emotions very seriously. They recognize that we all have emotional relationships with our money. We feel things about our money and they try to actually encourage people to not just pretend they don't have feelings, but engage with it. For a long time, there's been an idea that all our financial decisions should be, you know, very sort of objective, you know, we shouldn't let our emotions get in the way, we should just weigh up the pros and cons and make the right financial decision. But we also know very well from lots of behavioural research that that doesn't happen in reality. Almost never, you know, we're all making emotional decisions all the time, to the extent that people who are professors of finance will also make emotional decisions. I remember one time I was meeting with this financial professor who said to me, oh, yeah, you know, I get these letters in the mail. They tell me, you know, what my investments are at, where my investments are at. But my investments dropped. I lost a lot of money. So when I get the letters, I just don't look at them, just put them in a drawer, try to ignore them because I still feel so bad, bad about them, you know. Okay, so that is not making a rational kind of calculation. Well, I lost, but, you know, let's move on. So apps like Navit, which is a financial management app based in the United States, try to actually encourage you to think about your money by really giving you tools to actually measure it on a daily basis. So the one on the right, what is your money mood, lets you say how you feel about your, about your money. Are you excited? Are you calm? I like that they include FOMO in there, fear of missing out. Uh, that's a really great one. Interesting, those are the, the six they have identified and FOMO is in there. Um, and on the left, you can see the graphs that they have come up with as to what your money mindset is. So you can see for the whole month how you felt about your money. I mean, that's amazing, right? I mean, how many of us actually think about our emotional relationship to our money and reflect on that? You know, perhaps if we had a better idea about how we feel about our money, <clears throat> excuse me, we might be better placed to actually take account of those emotions and figure out what they mean, figure out what they mean about what we want and what we should do, and then let that, that also factor into our decision-making. So in my personal opinion, these kind of approaches that allow you to actually take tap into your emotions are in fact potentially super beneficial for improving your financial well-being. And for me, that is something that is good for us as human beings. Now, um, I've been doing quite a real research lately on uh, serving women as well. Uh, with Annette Brolos, uh, we've been doing this research looking into the market for financial services for women. You may not know this, but there are actually quite a lot of services out there these days that target women specifically. And we started doing this research because we were asked to write a chapter for the book on the left. We wrote the chapter and we featured a few of these companies as kind of case studies in the, in the chapter. But then we thought, wow, there's probably a lot more out there we haven't encountered. And so we set about doing research to find as many companies targeting women as we could. And with that information we wrote, the second uh, item you see on the screen, which is the report, Female Finance Digital Mobile Networked. That report focuses mostly on 
the kinds of services being offered to women, you know, why do women need these financial services? Why do they want them? What are the financial services trying to achieve? How do they approach women? You know, is it just in the advertising? Is it in the design, etc.? After we finished that report, we went on to write a second report, Female Financing Figures, where we tried to put some of these ideas in infographics. And we also looked more deeply at the kind of companies developing these services to get an idea who they are, what their values are, and why they're servicing women. But the idea generally of these services for women is they can help narrow the um, financial uh, gender gap. So there are lots of facts and figures in this infographic we made, but probably the two most important pieces of information to illustrate this are that globally, female children tend to receive less financial education than male children. And what that means is that as they move along in life, they become disadvantaged because they're behind, um, they're not as well placed to make financial decisions about investments and savings, et cetera. And the other thing, of course, is the gender pay gap, which also exists worldwide, which exacerbates uh, that effect. So you don't have enough information about financial tools and, and you don't also, also don't have enough money to, to invest. Um, and that puts people at a disadvantage. And the idea of the financial tools for women is that they can try and narrow that gap. This is just quite quickly the infographic we made about all the companies we found. Um, we found over 100 companies offering financial services to women um, and they fall in many areas. So you've got um, insurance actually is a really big one. One of my favourite companies in here is called Sheila's Wheels, which is a UK company that offers car insurance to women. And uh, they do use pink very heavily, which is not necessarily the greatest tactic, but they have a really fun approach uh, to selling uh, finance to women, including having their own uh, girl band who actually made it like a chart-topping single, which I find the most brilliant marketing strategy ever. Um, as I mentioned, there's a bunch of investment apps, which makes sense because women are usually uh, globally very behind in investments as well. Um, and a few things in payments and credit as well, although we found less in payments and credit, uh, which to me is not surprising because, you know, despite the existence of companies like Afterpay, for the most time, payments are pretty gender, gender neutral. You know, the idea of money is that it's supposed to be fungible. You can use money to pay for anything. So there are sort of it kind of defeats the purpose or it can defeat the purpose if money becomes gendered you know, it's then not for all purposes. So that's actually basically the end of my little show. Just to sum up quickly, I suppose what matters to me is what I'm interested in is what companies are actually doing. You know, how do you think about what's good for people? Uh, it's easy for us to all sit here if we don't work in a bank or a fintech and think, well, you know, um, people need financial well-being and they need to have security and they need to be able to think a little bit, if not very long term, then at least, you know, for the immediate future to know they have their needs covered. Um, you can also think about, um, you know, a good humanistic financial world as one in which the financial markets with the big capital F are structured in a way that actually might avoid things like the global financial crisis that happened in 2008, that might um, encourage you know, sustainable investments, for example, um, a whole bunch of stuff like this. But what I find really interesting is what companies do voluntarily. If you're a little FinTech, 
what is it that motivates you to, as a founder, to go, well, I want to serve low-income people better or I want to serve women or so on and so forth? What might motivate a bank to start offering these kinds of targeted services as well? And I find it interesting that companies are doing that. And especially with the smaller companies, which we've, we've spoken to quite a few of them, um, they usually have, the founders usually have very personal stories of where they have come from themselves and what led them to, to be where they are, what led them to decide, no, actually, I want to create a product that serves women because I have seen what happens to women. And so the point I'm trying to make is when we, when we tackle this question, we have to be very careful about how we go about judging these kinds of services because judging an investment bank is, might be one thing, judging a small fintech created by a founder who does want to actually do something useful could be something else. Often these fintechs themselves are questioning the value of their products. You know, they might think, well, you know, I made this product for low-income people, but I'm a bit concerned, you know, it could be harmful in these ways, it could be beneficial in these ways, etc. So what I really encourage is a kind of a conversation that tries to envelop those different spheres, you know, the kind of more academic approach of the critique of capitalism on the one hand, and then a more realistic appraisal of what who these companies are, what they're trying to achieve and how they're going about it. Um, <clears throat> my personal opinion is that the industry, in the, in the financial services industry, there is a lot of goodwill as well as sort of seeking profit. And there are possibilities for us to work together to have these conversations, broaden it out. Uh, and there'll be many people in the industry who are actually interested. So that's about it from me. Uh, hi, I I'm sorry I'm not putting the video on. I'm in New Zealand and I'm in my pajamas. I haven't even brushed my teeth because I had to wake up at the alarm. So that's fantastic. We're, we're very honored to have you with us in your pajamas, especially because you're in your pajamas. <laughs> yeah, it was almost pajama party because I'm in Sydney <laughs> and without my camera on too. Well, that's that's dedication. I I love to see that. Exactly. We've got I, we had Delia from uh, Australia as well, and lovely Melton there too. Well, we our group had a discussion where we had a unique group. Where I come from. I'm a practicing financial planner, and Melton and Yulia uh, are anthropologists. So it was really uh, very interesting where they wanted to get a, a gauge on you know how the industry is moving, and I was trying to get a gauge of what is academia, academia bringing to financial services? Because I've just, I'm working, I'm trying to work with women and, and close the gender wealth gap. That's my aim. Our discussion resulted in um, coming to a conclusion that yes, uh, financial services are important. It needs to be more inclusive. And the conclusion was the risk mitigation um, is important important and that is definitely going to be an outcome but the final measurables of a success of a company needs to be not just profit but the social impact on how you're alleviating human um, lives in general so um, it is possible to create great financial tools that benefit where the measure is uh, not the bottom line but where a measurable social impact is also there. Um, Julian, maybe, maybe I just add one point. Yes, it's, yes. What, what is important to consider as we discuss, it's uh, definitely ethics because created uh, financial service, which is even if it's uh, very, it's great, but if it is very 
tailored so much to the uh, customer, but there are particular risks that could not be avoided for a particular group because the service cannot be tailored so much for everyone. So considering ethics is very important not to let down people who are <laughs> very marginalized in the, let's say, in a particular group. That's why it's one of the important points that we discussed as well. Erin, would you like to comment or perhaps any one of you guys? Um, it's an open discussion, so feel free to jump in. All right. Um, so I think I, I really like this, uh, this uh, um, idea about and, and the conversation that you had about measurables, because I think obviously, you know, what is quantifiable and what is not, and how do we, um, uh, I mean, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm with you there, but then how do we measure social impact, right? Um, because that can be something that looks very different from a person to person that is exposed to a single product, right? So I don't know, actually, Erin, you would know more about this if there's a currently some sort of um, a movement within the financial industry that is also considering social impact and how 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 are they measuring social impact? I mean, I'm sure there's pressure on them to consider it um, <laughs> and to at least say it, but um, the the idea of measurement is 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 tricky, I guess. So yeah. Um, the idea of measurement is really, 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 really tricky. Um, it depends so much on what you're trying to measure and from, for what purpose. Um, so, for example, in um, the more sort of developing world kind of financial context, um, impact is usually measured uh, by uh, reference to things like, you know, uh, lifting people out of poverty, um, you know, improving um, gender equality. These are the kind of impacts that are often measured. Um, but then if you look at something like um, impact on sustainable in investment, let's say, let's say you're a bank offering a sustainable investment product, then the, the impact might be something more like, you know, how many consumers are, are using it, which is a very different kind of impact. Um, there are probably thousands more examples like this. Um, I always try and come back to um, the question of how people measure impact themselves. You know, if let's say you're a person who has a low income and you're using financial services to meet particular needs, what, how do you define the impact? Like, you know, is it because it lifts you out of poverty? Maybe not. Maybe it's because it allows you to actually just run the household on a daily basis. Maybe it actually allows you to buy gifts for someone's birthday, which is a really important way of belonging in society. Um, however, the problem with self-defined impact is that it doesn't say anything about the structures of the financial system. You know, what is the impact? Well, what is the impact maybe of these five tools you use? Maybe you can get a good idea by looking at what people say. But what is the impact of the financial system as a whole on how people are living their lives? It's a completely different, uh, different measure. You know, what is the impact on the environment of the ways in which we use our financial products? What is the environmental impact of all the mobile phones circulating or of Bitcoin, you know, which uses massive... Mm -hmm. So it's like... It's a total minefield. So I think when defining impact, you just have to be really careful to figure out what actually you're 
measuring impact for what you're trying to achieve and then look at your own unconscious biases and your own personal or institutional motivations of why you might be defining impact for particular purposes and then also there's a, a there's a I, I guess always a hidden temporal component and substrata to that right because if i look at something like lifting out of poverty right and if the impact measurement is taken at a certain point in time or perhaps a household or a, or a particular um you know person looks like they have more income or more access or whatever that's not always a permanent state right um that can you know definitely go up and down and change so um i always feel like these impact measures perhaps um you know are not you know like they're, they're at a certain point in time but we don't discuss necessarily the kind of temporal um temporal dynamics that go that are always hidden within that. But I really like the fact that you said uh, structure because that was actually one question that I had for you um, on the question of crit the critique of capital that you, um, uh, that you mentioned um, and how critical can we be of financial tool providers? Um, I was thinking that that got me thinking about um, you know, something like poverty, for example, right? That's a structural condition. Um, so what's the relationship between a single tool, right? Um, aiming to intervene or, you know, however you wanna frame it, um, create an impact uh, in something that is so complex and so structurally dependent on so many other actors, right? Um, I guess this is this is it's not, not really a question. It's it's more of a comment because it got me thinking. It's so easy also to be very critical of financial tool providers, um, but in the end of the day, that, that they just you know one tool that they provide uh, or you know perhaps a bundle. I don't know whatever the case may be. Um, so in your question of you know how does the financial industry create tools fit for the human world? I guess my provocation would be, could it ever? <laughs> I don't know. Seeing that, you know, something like poverty is a structural condition. Well, I, again, yes, but poverty is a structural condition and no financial tool is going to change that. You know, it's not really much help if you have financial tools, but no money to, to use with them. You know, um, absolutely many things have to change. Two levels, I mean, one, People don't use financial tools in isolation anyway. You never use just one product. You use sure. multiple products. So you need to look at it in that dimension. And two, if you're looking at changing something like poverty, you have to change many different things at the same time. You know, financial tools can help. Um, education can help. Jobs can help a lot. You know, having money can help a lot, whether it's government yeah. payments or something like that. Yeah. So you need to change all these, all these different things um, uh, at the same time. But um, again, it depends on how you define creating tools fit for a human world. Because what I could say, what is a, okay, what is a tool fit for a human world? If we just focus on the word tool for now, well, a tool fit for a human world is one that people can use and they find useful and that enhances their life in some way and generally does not cause undue harm. It causes more good than harm. Right. So you could have financial tools that are fit for a human world for sure. Like, for example, a Nabbit's app probably is a tool fit for a human world. It 
lets you manage your money. It lets you rate your money mood. It's probably not going to get you into trouble in terms of like, you know, getting into debt or like getting frauded. Yeah, it's possible, I suppose, but it's pretty unlikely. So to me, that's a tool fit for a, a human world. Mm -hmm. So for me, absolutely, you can have those tools. But when you ask, can you find, create a financial industry fit for a human world? That's a different question. And that is a really hard one. And I do not know if that is actually possible. Um, as um, Brett will hopefully explain in a second, because this was part of our conversation, we were talking about um, how do you build a financial industry from the ground up that is fit for humans as well? Like how do you get that participatory involvement to create an industry that's fit for a human world? And I'm not sure we answered the question but um, that Brett brought up, but that's the kind of direction in which we need to be, to be thinking. Uh, and maybe fantastic. Brett, maybe it's a good segue for you to, to pipe in. I think so. That's a, that's a fantastic question that, that you raised in that room. Okay, I think, and I think that question came up just because of our, just introducing ourselves and our, our interests. Wei is working on her doctorate, looking at philanthropy and relationships between grant makers and grantees and community activism. I think I've captured that way correctly. Please mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. But so that, that opens up a whole world of questions about the current way money flows where it originates and where it flows. And that's really my interest. I spent about 20 years working in the industry in product development, but I did leave it about 2007, um, just before the crisis. And I've been working in human-centered design research and, part, and design thinking for the last decade. So that's really where I'm coming from and kind of that prompted the question, I think Aaron's question, how would we think about designing the system from the ground up? And I don't think there are, there are answers, but there are examples in the past of kind of popular education and consciousness raising. Um, there are whole bodies of literature of critics and um, historians and anthropologists looking at our current system and really questioning it. But those, but those, those voices are not part of the discourse, the dominant discourse, and they're not even really their ideas are not part of our ontology for solutions. But one of, but, but, but Wei brought up a point from her own work is that there's mutual aid, that certain community organizations are supporting each other with mutual aid, which is, an, which is a wonderful example of how ideas can come from outside of the dominant discourse and the dominant sort of anthropologists and economists who are trying to solve the problem. It can come from somewhere else you know, from practice, for ordinary people's ways of coping with the system. So I don't know if does that summarize pretty well what, I, what we talked about? I think so. Um, Wade, do you have anything to add on to that that we might have missed? No, I think Brad did a really great job summarizing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but, but I find that fascinating also just to think about that, that idea of the mutual aid, the bottom up, you know, things like, you know, for hundred, I live in the Netherlands and for hundreds of years, there's been that kind of mutual assistance. Uh, you know, your house burns down, your neighbors help you rebuild it, that sort of, you know, community insurance, um, that sort of stuff. So what, what I find interesting to think about is how, how effective can that be? How far can that go? You've got things like that mutual insurance, you've got things like Bristol Pound as ways to try and keep money circulating in a locality. How far can that go? You know, 
what, what else do we need? Do we also need the regulators coming in and saying, no, we need to do things this way? Do we need bigger structures? Like what's got to be the makeup of that, you know, financial cake, so to speak, like you know, the flour and the eggs and whatever to make that work? Yeah, that's, that's certainly a, a fascinating if, if question if one needing more, uh, more time than we can, than we can devote because we're also uh, uh, reaching close to reaching the, the end of our session. So, uh, but perhaps Erin, that will be then a question that we could uh, raise further in the Apply Club Finance and the further events and, uh, and formats that uh, we could develop there. But I think it's it's an important one, so that's that's exciting. And uh, finally, Simon and Jacqueline, uh, what did you guys uh, talk about, and uh, how did you address the the impulse question? Hi everyone. Um, first of all, many thanks, Erin, for your illuminating talk. I've been following up on your uh, post as of recently. I'm very happy that I could listen to your talk. Um, first of all, we had a very concrete um, case of Nubak, which uh, Jacqueline mentioned, which was about you know um, Brazilian bank that basically had a differential way of kind of segmenting people who had a different. Uh, input in the banking system. So for instance, if you were only contributing this amount versus that amount, which is higher, you had like a difference, uh, say, in matters of banking in that kind of way, sort of um, exacerbated inequality. Jacqueline, please jump in if I'm missing out on details. Um, um, was a lot of information, but it was, very it was a very interesting case. And it kind of in, um, reminded me of this thing called one dollar, one vote, which many banks try to get rid of at least the ones really getting on top of it and are really ready to take action to mitigate those um, elements. Um, on the other hand, um, what came to mind was the things like um, disciplining uh, behavior, which is very interesting. I found that you mentioned in that kind of way, which is of course one of the things that many people have been saying in different ways. Like for instance, the market is a regulating function, which we also try to regulate. So there is this double loop basically going on. And uh, what was very interesting is um, that kind of reminded me of the Afterpay thing when you were when we were talking about tools, basically. So Afterpay, you can say that is actually a form of deficit spending on a small scale, which I think is a very unethical thing because deficit spending, it only seems like a sound thing, you know, and of course more in a, as a last resort. If you do have like the the prowess and the, the power of a nation state, when you have enough institutions to back up that decision which is very difficult and on the other hand there is also the uh, little reflection that i had on risk and risk is actually a pretty wicked problem if you look at it if you really unpack it in in its uh, psychosocial and also in its space-time performative uh, way there is uh, many things many hurdles that you have to jump if you're trying to unpack it and one of them is of course that I kind of summarize it as a very flaccid vector because it does something, it, it's going somewhere, but I don't really know how. And it's more of a question like, how do you um, look for the future consequences? And there is the human actors, there, there is the aspect of mistrust and trust. There is the fact that you need a certain amount of knowledge in order to be able to jump these hurdles. There is also the pedagogical aspect of risk in what kind of way does your upbringing or you know, the experience that you have had in your life do they make you more apt to deal with risks? That's a very, there is some pedagogical literature on that as of recently, 
that um, yeah, that in a certain way risk is a very how do you say that? It's also based on experience. I mean, for instance, um, many of these playgrounds these days are also trying to get back to to be more risky because if you see them at them right now, they're too rubbery. Back in the day, I I only got off one of these you know installations when I had like a lot of splinters in my fingers, like five in each or something, so to speak. And right now it seems that, you know, there's too much entourage. You can cut that part out because it's not really, it's more of a reflection on basing, but it's not based on analytical rigor. But there's also the thing of risk and that is how do you deal with the consequences? And that is also very differential. Who is going to pay for what consequence? And that's also one of the points of David, of David Graeber's debt I found. Like who is going to pay for what? And if, you know, we're, um, really sticking to the adage of what comes around goes around or everyone pays their debts. It actually wasn't for a couple of them and some people are just being bailed out but while others had to, you know, be at the mercy of institutions, so to speak. And that's a final reflection, but I'm going to give the word to Jacqueline right now. Yes, I'm not sure if I have something to contribute just uh, related to the Nuban case, it's uh, interesting that uh, it's of course like the landscape of the financial sector is kind of changing, but then at um, the same time, uh, in some places, the change um, is kind of oppressed by the cultural norms and the regime. And uh, so, yeah, nice, it's changing. But for instance, the case of Nuban. Uh, it started with a great idea, like a more assist a bank that is online and more accessible to people. And for instance, my mother-in-law doesn't have an, a bank account, so now she can have she can have a bank account. And those kind of things that appears to have more uh, uh, more justice behind uh, and uh, on uh, the underlying structure. But then it uh, becomes it develop, develops and. Uh, it, it start to be a system that uh, segregate people. And that now if you have this amount of money, then you have uh, this access of those kind of services and etc. So just like to complement that uh, in some places um, needs more than the innovation, needs like a a whole cultural uh, change of mindset. And the, the pace that I see that is developing can take like years, like 20, 30. And I hope that we are going to see a different thing that doesn't, that is not like oppressive and etc. Erin, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a, from both Simon and Jacqueline, that's a very interesting summary with so many different points. Um, Trying to figure out where to start. But basically, so I guess the two things that stick with you is Jacqueline, that idea about the financial system that's ability to segregate people. That's absolutely true. I mean, we look historically at the, you know, different coloured credit cards. You've got your platinum card or your gold card or your silver card or whatever that you can 
flash around in a shop and, and use to show off with. These days, I think some challenger bank accounts also become kind of status symbol items, not necessarily just of that you're wealthy, but that you're you're savvy and you're like hip and whatever. So I do think it's absolutely right that that can happen. Um, and that's a good opportunity to think about what is the materiality of those services, you know, to what extent do they stop being just numbers in a computer somewhere that represent how much you owe or, or how much you have versus something that is a material thing that you use in the course of everyday life and that, that mediates social relations as well, causing sometimes, you know, excellent things to happen and sometimes also actually just just mitigating those divides um and yeah i think with um with simon's comment um your discussion of risk actually reminded me of a, com a conversation i had just recently about pain points in financial services when you're saying okay well how much risk do we want to take on what is people's responsibility to manage their own risk you know, and the idea that risk actually is beneficial and it keeps you sort of, you know, being more plastic, neurologically plastic yourself and adaptive and et cetera. Um, I've had that conversation in relation to pain points in financial services with people saying, well, actually you don't want to, because there's this, tends to be this idea that financial services, if they're well designed, can remove all the pain points and just make everything super easy. But there are times when you do not want to do that. You don't want to remove all the pain points because you make it too easy and people don't stop and think. If you make it too easy to pay, too easy to buy something, too easy to just make a decision without having to reflect on what you're doing, then you can really get into trouble. So uh, what I understand but don't know much about, and maybe actually Brett knows something here, is that there's a bit of a movement also to build pain points back in, to stop consumers to, so that they can have a think before they do something. That's a fantastic point. Actually, Brett, I'd be curious if, if you happen to know that, because I think that this is uh, this is one of the, uh, it's, it's paradoxical, but it makes also sense, right? That sometimes having the pain and the pain point built in is what the customer does really need. So it's, uh, you know, this kind of against the grain of most of current uh, contemporary dominant design movement of eliminate the pain. Um, and actually sometimes pain can be, or, you know, the pain point can be quite, uh, it actually can lead to a better product. So um, I don't know, Brett, if, um, if you can speak to that from a design thinking perspective, but. Yeah, I would just say that there are instances in, 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 in design where, you, you know, you want the user to be intellectually engaged in the decision in a, in, in a choice so or you you know so you, you you effectively want to put something there that makes them have to make a decision or make a make a, a choice so that it's not completely somebody else making that choice because there will come a, there may come a time when liability you know the, the the engagement and the act the agency of the user is important to have clearly stated um, Mm -hmm. so. Interesting that it goes back to liability again and uh, and risk. That's so, one. Yeah, that's one. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, I kind of latched onto that. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm interested in the topic of finance, but I'm not so, uh, uh, so learned in in all the various facets. So um, this was this was interesting for me to. To kind of uh, yeah. This is, this is actually one of my most important question areas and inquiries: is how do people who don't know and who have not been schooled, how, what do they bring that's fresh 
that's what I think is really important now. Because, when, because once we are trained in the justifications for things as they are, we lose our emotional, you know, that sort of moral ethical questioning of something because, well, it's been explained to us, this is the way it has to be, or it's always yeah. been this way, you know? Right, right. And fit into the expert community and, and advance, I have to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with the people who are gonna judge my writings or judge my promotions or choose me for the person to speak on television, you know, as the expert, I have to, so there's so many pressures to conform. Hmm. And uh, yeah, and also that says something about the, the dark side of expertise no? yeah. uh, and, uh, and the good sides about being an amateur perhaps, but that's an entirely different conversation. Uh, yeah. Simon, yeah, go ahead, Brett. No, I, was just, I was just saying that I, I'm reading a book by Christine Desson, who's a, who's a legal scholar at Harvard. And it is really interesting that at that level, just like, you know, critical race theory 40 years ago, we can only hope that her inquiries can create some kind of change, but she's actually asking the questions about the legal principles behind this system that evolved in Anglo-Saxon Anglo law, you know, and really spread around the world. Um, she's asking these very, very interesting questions now at the Harvard Law School. Um, so I think that's also an encouraging sign that within expert communities, people are starting to, to question mm -hmm. the unquestioned. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Simon, um, you, you have a perhaps final point to make um, because we're now past the, the official time and past the, past the extra time, but uh, it's a an enjoyable conversation but um go ahead and, and make that parallel that you just posted in chat well you know for the podcast you can completely cut it out i mean it's not very important for the discussion overall but i was just thinking about you know what erin just said about and and brett just commented about the fact that you know these points of friction the fact that there is always this relative ease and relative unease it, it's a kind of reminds me of the existential equilibrium that you know anthropologists such as michael jackson have been pointing out you know the fact that there is always this thing that, that keeps life relatively stirred and unstirred and maybe to build that in into the financial system is kind of corresponding to these waves but I'm just postulating here and it could be that there is an aspect of, aspect of well-being here and I did my field work on, on mountaineering and I saw the same parallels coming back in, but that's a very abstract deduction that I made for my own um, field work when I was in Norwegian mountains and when people were actually looking for friction at you know certain events in their lifetimes so it, it is indeed true that, you know, a smooth sailing is not always going to remain that way. I think there is always some points that, we, you know, people have bursts of, bursts of energy and maybe that energy needs to be invested in something else. And maybe people, for that reason, look for active points of, um, you know, to invest their energy in. And that's just my postulate. And again, you can cut it out for the, for the podcast. It has nothing to do with the um, thing of anthropology or anthropology and finance. It's a, it's, a, it's a tangent, but I was just thinking about it and it might be interesting to reflect on. Oh, fair enough, but perhaps it's a tangent that somebody listening to this may turn uh, for their own intellectual purposes back onto questions of finance and anthropology, why not? Um, all right. So um, seeing that it is really early in the morning, 
in Australia and New Zealand, and that we are probably between, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting between between you guys and Dina for, for most of you in Europe. Um, Brett, I don't know where you're based, I'm sorry. I would otherwise make a fun pun about, about location and timing and, and events. But um, if uh, nobody has anything else um, to- Maybe, yes. Yeah? Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, Go just uh, the question about moral dilemmas of anthropologists uh, working in finance—it's very of, I, I, vital to me because uh, this, in, especially in the growing industry, as like for example, buy now, pay later, as Afterpay or Zip here, or last week, uh, PayPal and Apple Pay introduced paying in rates uh, for payment. So it's now really growing. It's a really global and they're hiring particularly anthropologists to help them do the things that they're doing. And as anthropologist uh, and Erin, as a question particular for you, what, what, what is their agenda? Should we criticize being external to the industry or to try to still working there? I'm asking particularly in this buy now, pay later and try to change uh, and to which extent is it possible? Um, yeah, it's very frightening. Yeah, I, my personal opinion is we need to get all those anthropologists together to discuss this. Because I, I, cannot, I cannot really reflect upon the moral issues involved in other anthropologists' work um, without their voice, I think. But it would certainly make for an extremely interesting session for one of these supply finance events to get a bunch of people together who are working in industry in areas where they, you know, they may be concerned about the work they're doing or, or, or whatnot or might love it uh, and talk through these issues. Yeah. I think I think it's a very very important point, and that we should definitely take up on on that. Um, so on that point, uh, I would invite everybody again to sign up for uh, for Apply Club Finance. Um, it's it's totally no strings attached. It's free. Um, <laughs> I don't know if if there's a joke to be made about free anything, um, especially in the context of finance. But there we go. So we would love to host you again. Um, hopefully sometime soon and um, until then it was a pleasure thank you Erin so much for the generosity of your time and your insights thank you guys for for a very vibrant discussion and um, until next time I hope thank you everybody for coming thank you, thank you Laura thank you Bye. thank you so much for watching or listening and don't miss the next episode of EASA's Applied Anthropology Network's Apply Club events.